Welcome to Mental Health in Minutes, where we open the door to conversations about workplace mental health and help leaders and HR professionals create safe and innovative organizations where our employees and our companies thrive. I'm your host, Lindsay Recknell, a psychological health and safety advisor, a workplace mental health consultant, speaker, facilitator, and an expert in hope. Each episode of this show has three objectives, to discuss the future of mental health in the workplace, to identify the best, most successful strategies for opening the door to mental health conversations at work, and to share the top ways we can engage our leadership in the workplace mental health conversation and have them endorse and pay for a positive culture shift within our organization. If you're listening to this podcast or watching us on the YouTube channel, you know that our people need us more than ever, but most of our organizations have a long way to go until supporting employee wellness is embedded in the culture of our workplace. This episode is a resource you can use to start and continue mental health conversations, and my guests will share their experiences and what's worked for them. Excited to get going, so let's dig in. Today's guest is Jordan Friesen. Jordan is the founder and principal consultant of Mindset Mental Health Strategy. He is a senior leader with many years experience in Canada's nonprofit sector, leading national initiatives focused on corporate mental health. Since leaving the nonprofit world, Jordan uses his skills as a consultant to assist organizations who want to take progressive action to support the mental health of their workforce as a competitive advantage and a business imperative for the future of work. In addition to consulting, Jordan has experience in training, education, mentorship, public speaking, and research. He prides himself on being able to distill complex ideas into actionable insights for a wide range of audiences, from executives to students. He's a sought-after subject matter expert on workplace mental health, and he's a registered occupational therapist who holds a Master of Occupational Therapy degree from the University of Manitoba. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Pleasure to be here. I love reading those bios. It just, it doesn't it make you feel like so fancy and important? <laughs> <laughs> I think it does two things. Uh, every time I hear somebody read my bio, there's there's an immediate uh, twinge of uh, of imposter syndrome uh, that, that comes to the top and surfaces. Appreciate but the two, it's also, Absolutely, it's also a good reminder of uh, of of where I've been and and the things I've done, and I think in many ways the people I've met along the way. So I think it does both of those things. But anyway, thank you for the very gracious introduction. I appreciate that. Well, we are really excited to have you here. I think you have a ton of really great experience that our listeners um, and watchers can really benefit from. And I know that you have a lot of um, not only experience with supporting organizations with their workplace mental health, but also some ideas about what we can do differently and what we can do better and what the future of work looks like. And I wonder if maybe we can start there. Mm -hmm. What do you think the future of work looks like uh, in Canada or I guess internationally, if that's a yeah, stretch yeah, that well, far. <laughs> absolutely. I, I think, uh, I mean, the future of work uh, largely depends on the area of, of work that you're focused on, right? But when I think about, you know, the, the typical work environment, and I, I say typical with air quotes, but you think about a typical environment that's say maybe corporate or office or, or that, that type of setting, I mean, the, the future of work uh, there at I think in many other places is is largely human. Um, I think that's the that's the key. You know, I think the I think robots and AI are obviously going to take over a lot of the automated tasks that many of us been, have been doing since the industrial revolution. Uh, but the future of work is is undoubtedly human and an undoubtedly brain based economy. Now that's nothing new. People have been saying that for a long time, but. 
what that really does, I think, emphasize and demonstrate is that our brains are going to very quickly, if not already, become our most valuable assets. Uh, and I think in particular, they're going to become uh, a company's most valuable asset as well. You know, success is going to be driven by um, the productivity, the creativity, the innovation contained within a workforce. And all of that is right up there in our brains. Totally true. And I think uh, we talk about it. We recognize that it's there. Mm-hmm. But do we ha- have we taken action on it yet? Or are we still stuck a bit in the mm-hmm. past of the industrial revolution? You know, almost? I, I think, I think it, it depends on in many ways where you're at in an organizational structure and hierarchy. So I, I see differences and not to say these are universal, but uh, I see differences, you know, from say like a leadership perspective, a very senior leadership perspective down to like say a management or, or supervisory perspective you know, I think at the leadership perspective, uh, you know, C-suite and 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 other executives, everyone's very much thinking about the, what the future of work looks like. You know, they're aligned. They they know the right words to say. They know, um, you know, they know what's trendy. Absolutely, uh, and and they're starting to think that way. I think the disconnect often gets you know gets down at that management or supervisory level where uh, quite frankly and by no fault of their own people that lead other people just often aren't aren't taught or aren't given the opportunity to develop the skills to do that effectively that aligns with you know what what the most senior leaders are thinking about as you know this this utopian future of work that that we're all that we're all um you know careening towards and you know i think what's What's most interesting and probably a tangent that we can get on at some point throughout our conversation is just how quickly COVID has accelerated that uh, that priority, uh, but also, I think, exposed that discrepancy. And how do we how do we close that gap um, now that not now that the discrepancy has been exposed? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if I if I had the the one answer, the silver bullet for it. I mean, I, I, you know, quite frankly, I'd probably be retired in Costa Rica at this point, <laughs> uh, and not not currently in Winnipeg. Uh, and we don't need to discuss the weather in Winnipeg because that's not going to inspire hope in anyone. But, <laughs> but I think um, I think what we what we need to start figuring out is fundamentally what are the skills and capacities required to be an effective leader of people. And perhaps even differentiating that from uh, from a manager of tasks, right? Because yeah. I think the two are such separate skills, uh, and in many ways, there are some people that thrive being very procedural, can execute a process from A to Z and nail it perfectly every time, and they can help navigate those processes, manage projects, mitigate risks, all of that great stuff. Um, but I don't know if that always goes hand in hand with the skills required to effectively manage the human side of people at work. And right now, what, what I'm seeing, and you know, I think this is fairly consistent across a lot of organizations, is that those two roles often get smushed together in the role of a manager. Right. Um, and and so it was, you know, it was uh, mentioned to me as a quote from from a colleague of mine, and they were talking about, you know, sort of progression in leadership, and um, 
And so, and, and someone, someone that they used to work with had said, um, you know, don't, don't try to become a manager, try to become an executive. It's way easier. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I hadn't really thought of that before, but in many ways I can understand why, because, uh, you know, uh, the traditional manager role, you know, in the past was very task and process focused, but organizations are, for better or worse, consistently also now expecting managers to be people leaders too, and have that other domain of skill set, and and we're crunching them together in one role, and there's an immense amount of pressure there. So, I don't know what the answer is, admittedly, but I think untangling untangling those two roles in some respect is probably part of the solution. So, identifying you know when you're thinking about the role of a manager in your organization being very clear is to say is this a manager of process uh, and task or is this a manager of of people um, because they're very different types of skills that you have to use um, and uh, and you know if those two need to stay in the same sort of seat for that matter um, how do you select the right people for those management positions? that do have that balance of skills. Uh, And I think about a great, um, you know, sort of example in healthcare. And, um, you know, when we think about who gets promoted in healthcare, uh, who who rises to, you know, positions of senior leadership within, you know, large hospitals or um, health authorities or, or, or any other large organization like that, for example, you know, it's the, the, the manager of nurses is typically a really good nurse. Right. Or the manager, I'm an occupational therapist. Right. So the manager of occupational therapists, typically a really good OT, um, but that doesn't make them a good manager necessarily. Sometimes they luck into it. Sometimes they grow into it. But um, can we get a little bit smarter uh, about identifying the people who who have that right balance of skills? Um, that's, I think, another secret here, part of the solution. Um, and I don't know where we've gone now, but feel free to ring me back in, Lindsay. Well, but I just keep thinking like this concept of separating yeah. a manager of, of tasks and a manager of people. Like, yes, no, the novelty of that, but the application of that would be really awesome. Mm-hmm. It would. And, and I think it would also help people think differently about things like growth and development in mm-hmm. their career, in, in any specific organization, you know, for many people within any company, you know, the only opportunity for growth is, is up, right? The only opportunity for promotion is to a place of supervision, a place of, yes. of people management. Yeah. But I think inherently we know that for some people, that's, that's just, that's not how they want to grow. That's not what they want to do. Um, and, but we're not providing them other avenues for that growth, right? We're not, you know, what, how else are you going to increase your salary unless you get promoted? So you're managing a larger and larger team, for example, right there, you know, the hierarchical nature of organizations very rarely allow for that. Uh, and so if we think about perhaps what the future of work looks like or the future of workplaces looks like, Maybe that's a part of it too, um, and breaking down some of that hierarchy, or at least at least separating some of that hierarchy. So there's different options available for people. There's different ways to grow within your career. If you want to manage people, then great. Let's focus you in so you can do that really, really well. 
And if you don't want to manage people, quite frankly, that's fine too. Let's, let's get you really, really good at the things that you want to be really good at. And, you know, this is, this is, um, this is talking organizational development, management practice very broadly. But when we think of the impacts on mental health in particular, you know, we know that the people managing people have a huge impact on the well-being of, of employees, at, at, quite frankly, at every level of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a significant imperative. And we also know that, you know, from a mental health perspective, making sure your managers are really good at supporting the psychological health of employees is, is where the return on investment is, too. So I think that's the connection. Um, but, you know, it has implications well beyond you know, simply how a manager can support an employee with depression, right? It's it's really about rethinking the way our organizations are structured and, and designed to support people in those roles. Well, it absolutely is. I mean, if we think about what creates a psychologically safe environment for us to work in, it's a place where we feel like we can be innovative, that we can mm-hmm. contribute our best selves, that we can show up as our, our best mm-hmm. selves. And if we feel like the only way we can earn more money and get promoted is to go into a leadership role that we don't want to be in, that mm-hmm. we are not good at and is not our place to be, but we mm-hmm. don't feel like we have any other option to grow our career, mm-hmm. then that is contributing to a non-psychologically healthy workplace. And yeah. so the, this alternative uh, org structure that you're talking about is something to be explored and, and has a direct connection to, to psychological safety. Absolutely. Well, it's good. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you agree. Uh, it certainly <laughs> makes my job much easier. But uh, again, right, figuring out what that looks like to say I, to say there's a silver bullet, I think, is a mistake. I certainly don't know exactly what it looks like, but that's that's the problem that I see. I mean, mm-hmm. among a few at the moment, but that's that's a problem, a challenge. Um, is the fact that often a lot of the burden in, in supporting the mental health of employees comes down to managers, even though senior leadership might be well aligned on the importance on how it feeds into what the future of work looks like. Um, the burden ultimately falls down on the people supporting the people, the people supporting the people. Yeah. Um, and, and that can be a really difficult spot to be in. And I've been hearing from a lot of my guests, the in particular, the burden is falling extra on kind of that middle management level mm-hmm. where they're yeah. managing the people and they're also managing above. Of course. Um, yeah. Do you have some specific thoughts or messages that you could give to those middle managers mm-hmm. to, to engage their, their senior leadership um, mm-hmm. in a more meaningful way? Uh, and I'm assuming, you know, a more meaningful way specifically around the topic of, of psychological health and what makes a mentally healthy workplace. Yeah. Yeah. And, on, yeah. and increasing, increasing employee wellness in the workplace. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no right or wrong way to go about it, but, um, I think the, the, at least a starting point is identifying what, what's important to them or what's important to the organization. If, if mental health in their eyes is not a priority. Mm-hmm. What is? Yeah. Um, and and so I say that because in you know what we know from from a ton of research emerging and and you know well established is that just about any business outcome you want to see is going to be directly tied to the psychological health of your employees, especially if you're in a workplace like most workplaces where you're doing more than uh, than making widgets. Yeah. Right. So, 
you know, I think, I think it really doesn't matter. You know, I've, I've talked to employers where, you know, the, the driver, the thing that ultimately pushes them to take action here is, is it's, it's financial, it's risk mitigation. I've talked to employers who are really focused on engagement, um, innovation, creativity, for example. Uh, I've talked to employers who are, who are focused on reputation, um, you know, outward certification and indicators of excellence that establish that they're a great place to work. I mean, whatever it is, uh, you can tie any of it back to having a mentally healthy workplace. Um, and so I think that's, that's really the critical piece. Uh, now that's not an argument that that's not necessarily an argument that you can make in five minutes, right? It's part of likely an ongoing series of conversations over time that help illustrate the point. Um, but ultimately if, uh, if you're not positioning it as a way to help, this leader, CEO, executive, et cetera, accomplish their vision for the organization along whatever line they currently are thinking, um, it's going to, it's going to be a difficult sell. Um, (laughs) So I think that's really the critical part is just as identifying what is the change that they want to see in their organization and then identifying how this actually supports it because without a doubt it does. There's no way it can't. Um, There's no way it can't. Uh, you know, another another thing that uh, I've seen be successful in the past is really articulating and describing the cost of doing nothing, um, and and that that can work in some cases. Um, you know, describing you know what is the cost of what is the cost of not addressing this issue? What's the current impact on our business? How do we quantify it? Can we attach a dollar value to it? All of those things um, can can help as well, and and maybe that dual pronged approach is is what gets it, but. Um, the other thing as well, I think if you have a good relationship with, you know, whoever that leader is, uh, in many ways, uh, being a mirror for them and, and, you know, identifying how their, uh, leadership approach, their management approach directly impacts even your mental health. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not to say that, that that's an appropriate, uh, or comfortable conversation in every instance, but if you have a trusting relationship with a leader, I think sometimes it's that, very visceral, um, uh, that very visceral understanding of what the issue is, uh, that ends up turning, turning the tide. So I, I, you know, I spoke to, I spoke to a leader recently, you know, the thing that really catalyzed their decision was having a close colleague that had to go off work because of a mental health related condition. And not to say that work was, was necessarily the cause, but I think for them, it was, uh, you know, an opportunity to say, if, if we had a slightly different workplace, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe, maybe uh, it wouldn't have been as significant a roadblock for them. Maybe we could have identified that they were struggling earlier and provided that, you know, that appropriate type of support. Um, So sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's that, that personal experience that really catalyzes it. So not to say you should manufacture it, um, Mm -hmm. But but if it's there, I know that's one thing that can often turn the tides in a, in a pretty significant way. Well, and it makes you really think about this global experiencing experience that we're all having right mm-hmm. now, right? With COVID, um, nothing like a global pandemic to help open the door to these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. Because you know, similar to your your cult, your leader that you're talking about, where there was a shared experience that all of a sudden made it personal to them, mm-hmm. and that was the catalyzer to be able to do the thing. Um, I feel like 
COVID is going to have a very similar impact on mm-hmm. all of us because mm-hmm. it is very personal to each, every single one of us. There's that yeah. quote that says, um, we're all in the same storm. We're just not in the same boat. <laughs> right. So mm-hmm. there's, we're all experiencing the same thing. And so tell me what, what, what impact do you think that the last year is mm-hmm. going to have on the next 20? Oh, wow. Well, that's, uh, I'm going to, let me take out my crystal ball here. And... <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> so uh, a couple of things, you know, I think I'm already seeing one employers way more open to work as, a as a flexible exercise. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's huge. And, you know, I, I, I talked to employers who, um, up until last March would have said, no way, never, not going to happen. I want people in the office. That's how work is supposed to be done. Yeah. Right? And, and that's maybe a hyperbole in terms of how I'm articulating it, but that's the sentiment. Well, we've always worked from the office, right? I, I want to see people working. We need to be able to interact. We can't, how could we possibly do that from, from home? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, being forced to do it and suddenly realizing that, hey, it's, it's a lot easier and employees actually kind of like it. Um, not to say that it's going to stay, you know, hundred percent this way forever. I think the middle is probably a hybrid, but, um, flexibility is, I, I think, uh, going to be, uh, an essential element of work for years to come in environments where, where it is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there are environments where, where it, it quite frankly, isn't, um, for a number of reasons, but wherever possible, I think flexibility is going to be helpful. And, even in environments that are, say, really rigid, um, you know, shift work, factories, um, transportation, you know, stuff where, like, where there are schedules and they need to be adhered to. Um, I think what I've also seen and heard is the willingness for employers, for managers to add that, add a level of flexibility, even at an individual level, even mm-hmm. at a job level, even in the context of collective agreements, right? You know, and understanding that that they, they can do it, they can take some initiative, some autonomy, um, and and not to say that um, not to say that every employee needs to be treated equally, but but equitably, I think is really where people are at, and understanding that you know um, a, a, an extra fifteen minute lunch break for someone you know may not be the most helpful thing for someone else, and understanding that they don't have to be the same, they don't have to be applied equally, um, and so I'm seeing that as well. Uh, I think the other really important thing, and maybe in very much tied to flexibility, it's interesting, is that um, I was uh, on a call with a, another uh, another large client in, talking to a bunch of their HR folks, and they said, "Well, well, what's going on? Are we really struggling? Are people are people really struggling with their mental health? Because we've actually seen uh, pretty sharp declines in short term disability, as an example." Um, and, uh, and I said, well, actually that makes complete sense to me because if you look at the number one type of accommodation, people with mental health issues need and want from their employer, it's flexible work arrangements. Mm. So, you know, I I think what we're going to see is that more people able to successfully stay at work when they're struggling, um, and employers being able to support that in a much more effective way as a result. The other thing, if I can think, you know, 20, well, 20 years is a long time. I mean, that's, <laughs> okay, let's go 10. That's okay. Let's go 10. That seems more reasonable. Um, but I, I do think, uh, and, you know, if we look at any large scale crisis disaster, I know the word echo pandemic has been thrown around quite a bit and, and in some ways sensationalized, 
but uh, but it's it's true. Um, if we look at any large scale disaster uh, from the past, we know that the impacts from a mental health well being uh, perspective at the population level persist for a long time. You know, they looked at Hurricane Katrina, and you know, we're finding incidents of PTSD ten years post hurricane. Mm-hmm. So, if we're talking about a ten year timeline, I can confidently say that mental health issues and and challenges with mental health within a workforce uh, are are going to be um, probably more prevalent. Uh, you know, well beyond when we all get the vaccines and and can go back to a physical workplace. So, the challenge employers are going to have is how to support those employees most effectively. It's going to cause, I think it's going to create a push towards more comprehensive benefits in many cases, uh, unless, uh, and I'm thinking politically here, but unless, uh, you know, governments can find a way to really bolster what's available through our our publicly funded medical system. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's going to put more pressure on on employers from, from that front. And, you know, what we see even before COVID is, um, is quite frankly, employees are done asking for this kind of stuff. They're, they're demanding it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, especially if we look at, you know, Gen Z, millennials, um, they're, I think they're done playing nice. Uh, if you're not giving them what they need to look, to look after their mental health, they're going to leave. Um, there was a, a really great uh, study from the U.S., an organization called Mindshare Partners, and they said something like 70%, 75% of Gen Z has left or would be willing to leave a job if they felt it was bad for their mental health. 70%. Um, yeah, it's yeah, right? amazing. So it's, yeah. We're talking huge numbers here. So uh so I think I think a global pandemic uh is likely to accelerate that trend. Um if if you don't have an environment that supports people's well-being, people are just gonna leave. Um I mean the 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 reality in many cases is that um, when we think about work being remote, being flexible, uh, which it's likely to be for many new and emerging jobs, um, there's there's no reason to say that anyone's stuck with an employer in many cases. There, there are options out there and, and increasingly younger generations are more willing um, to take a risk and leave to find another option than to stay and, and have it detract from their overall well-being. So, where am I at, Lindsay? Was that was that was that ten years? Did we get there? Well, I, I yes, because I don't think we can we can't see beyond that. I mean, the vision gets very very fuzzy. Recognizing yeah. you know more than that kind of half a generation. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's, so I'm not sure. It sounds like it sounds overwhelming. Um, yeah. Right. The idea of this long term. Mm-hmm echo pandemic, um, mm-hmm. especially organizations that have traditionally struggled in this area mm-hmm. because of the stigma, because of the perceived risk, the yep. liability, whatever that looks like. Yep. Um, if an organization wants to start, but it's mm-hmm. overwhelming and they don't know what to do first, mm-hmm. what advice do you give them? <laughs> um, let's see here. If an organization doesn't know where to start, uh, I think the the place I usually suggest them starting, and this this often depends on the context too, but mm-hmm, uh, ask your employees. <laughs> what? Come on. <laughs> ask your employees. I know, revolutionary, right? Um, you know, you can ask, you can ask me, you can ask a hundred other experts, where should I start? 
But if the thing you do to start um, is not precisely matched to what your employees say they need, uh, it's going to be a difficult sell. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and you know, and it doesn't doesn't matter if it's if there if it's evidence based, if it's what all the research is saying. You know, there's an exception to every research study, uh, I, and so um, if you know, I, I think it's so critical to get to the level of being able to talk to your employees in some form or another and just ask very straightforward, what, what do you need to, to feel uh, mentally healthy at work or healthier, shall we say, healthier mm -hmm. at work? Um, let's start with that fundamental question. And you can ask that question a whole host of different ways. But um, the first place to start is to ask. Um, and, and, you know, as we just discussed, I mean, especially in, you know, this workforce that's, um, you know, that's, that's moving into a lot of organizations, Gen Z and younger, they're going to tell you, um, you might not like the answer, <laughs> but, but you're going to get an answer. Um, and, and whatever that resounding answer is, I would say is probably where to start, but it, you know, if in, in more concrete terms, um, the, the places to start that organizations typically find success in, um, number one, um, looking at benefits and boosting benefits. Um, pretty straightforward in many cases. Uh, I often use the example of treatment for major, depress major depression um, as, a, as an analogy. So, you know, you think about what's effective in terms of treatment for a major depressive episode. It's anywhere from 10 to say 14 sessions with a psychologist um, at say, you know, 200 bucks an hour, right? Um, so anywhere from 2000 to, well, what's my math here, Lindsay? Two, two to 3000 bucks, okay? Yep. Two, 3000 bucks, okay? And, uh, you know, and if you look at the large, you know, large portion of employers and the, the type of benefit for that service that they're able to offer their employees, it's, it's typically a fraction of that. 500 bucks a year. 500 bucks a year, right? Totally. 500 bucks yeah. a year, exactly. The rest out of pocket, um, or maybe you're lucky, you can you can jump ahead on a waiting list. I don't know, right? But, um, you know, uh, it, it, these are difficult services to access publicly. Um, and so if you're looking for a way to give your employees the help they need sooner and in a way that's more comprehensive, Benefits, I think, is often a great a great way to go. Um, but there's other stuff within that benefits domain too. Uh, you know, like like EAP, for example. And most employers have an employee assistance program, but um, many employers don't don't necessarily look at whether their employees are a using it or b even satisfied with it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a you know there's a huge range uh, of of EAPs and how they operate, how they function, how accessible they are, how how you know how personal and comfortable the experience feels, right? So that can be a, a really quick win too. Um, and from a benefits perspective, you know that return on investment uh, you know is not immediate, but it's you now it's it's on the order of three to five years, right? So it's not it's not so far out that you won't be able to see it. So that's one place that people um, companies can start if they're not sure where else to start. Uh, especially right now, uh, because there's more people needing uh, that type of, say, more intensive support across Canada than, than there have been before. Um, the other place um, I think employers start and have some success starting uh, is simply uh, conversations that, that enable the reduction of stigma. So if you're not sure where to start, um, start start talking about mental health and and mental illness. And I'm not afraid to use I'm not afraid to use the illness word. Yeah. Um, I think it's important that we differentiate between those two. But 
uh, start the conversation and and what what I see as being a huge catalyst for organizations changing the dialogue is when leaders are able to be vulnerable and able to share, especially if there's a leader that has, for instance, experienced a major depressive episode and, and recovered from it, right? Sharing that story, sharing that experience is something that can really quickly start to change the narrative within a country or within a, sorry, not within a country, within a company. There we go. Well, um, with the leaders of a country could also change the narrative. Maybe, <laughs> but yeah. maybe, yeah. Um, and uh, so those are some some concrete places mm-hmm. to start. But I think I think really the place to start is asking your employees what they need. And I, I see a lot of employers that, for many reasons, are still kind of afraid to do it. Um, and and I, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, I think you can you can ask employees what they need in a way that uh, in a way that also in some degree. Uh, tempers and sets realistic expectations about what an employer can do, right? So that's that's the key uh, that, that you need to balance there is you want to ask employees what they need. Also, make it clear that an employer is not, cannot do everything. Um, so that's the fear. Um, but I think in many cases, I would say it's unfounded. I think most of us, if we're working as an employee, we understand that inherently there there are things that are outside of our employer's control. There are things that we have responsibility for in terms of our own mental health and well-being. And there are things that impact our health that are well outside of the work environment as well. Um, so there, there's a there's a fear there and it's unfortunate, but the key is is about in that in that ask, you know, also communicating the message of um, there, there are of course limits on what we can do and being able to temper those expectations appropriately. Well, and can I also add that when you ask the employees what they need, they're going to give you a list of things, oh, right? So as an employer, just start to tackle the list with the expectation that you can't do everything on the list mm-hmm. now or maybe ever, but entering into it with almost with a partnership with the employees. Mm-hmm. Now you guys have told us what you need. Let's work together to do these things or to, to yep. start somewhere. And I feel like even that... Um, the whole action. So mm-hmm. it's one thing to ask, but now that you know, now you have to do. Yeah. And I yeah. think we miss, often <laughs> we miss that part. And then we ask the employees a year from now and they go, that's nice. I spent all my nice. time telling you, but you but still you didn't, didn't do anything. anything. So why, mm-hmm. why the heck would I tell you again? Um, <laughs> so I think that's, that's a key follow on yeah. piece to that. Um, and if organizations are concerned or don't know how to have those conversations or don't know how to ask. I mean, that's why people like you are around. That's why people like me are around to have those conversations with employers um, to better support. Absolutely. Yeah. And and often that can be uh, a pivotal part of the, the the formula for success is, is having somebody that's a third party in some ways seen as impartial that can help guide those conversations, especially in organ- in companies where, where there are other, say, contentious issues. Um, you know, I think in many cases, it's it's difficult in some unionized environments. It's, it's difficult in environments where trust has in some, in some way been compromised before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and like you said, right, the, 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 the challenge uh, that many employers have is really fixing a past mistake where they've asked and they haven't done anything. Um, so the commitment to action is 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 critical. But I think I think the commitment to action that 
makes sense, action that is reasonable, action that is in line with an employer's responsibility. Now, this is certainly not to say, and I would never suggest that an employer is 100% responsible for the mental health of their workforce. There's so many other other factors that lead into it. But um, I think uh, the, the willingness to take action in a way that's commensurate with an employer's role is, is really important. And and if that if that commitment isn't there, um, then don't ask. Right. Don't do it. Totally. Don't ask. Yeah. Yeah. Like, can that point cannot be made stronger? <laughs> just if you're going to go halfway, just don't go at all. <laughs> yep. That's exactly it. You know, that's exactly it. You know, I know we understand that uh, from our, like our family point of view, our personal relationship point of view, but I think we forget sometimes in a professional setting that it still applies. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. If, yeah, if you're not, if you're, if you're not going to go there, don't ask. Um, totally. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, we have reached the end of our time and I so appreciate everyone for listening and watching another episode of mental health in minutes. It's been my pleasure to introduce you to Jordan with all his experience working in the mental health space. Jordan shared his advice on how to engage senior leaders in these important conversations and how to lead healthier organizations into the future. He talked about where an organization can start to increase wellness for their teams and shared examples of great organizations and how they've created safe and healthy cultures for their employees to thrive. Jordan and I both believe in the power of our leaders to create psychologically safe workplaces. And we know that you do too, or you wouldn't be listening and watching this. If you love this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast player or on our YouTube channel. You can find this everywhere at Mental Health in Minutes, as well as on the web at mentalhealthinminutes.com. You can start supporting the mental health of your organization in minutes by joining my digital subscription, monthly done-for-you presentations designed to engage, inspire, and increase mental wellness in your workplace. It's my pleasure to get to work with people like you, people leaders, who care so much about your employees and want to give the best of yourself to support those around you. I also know how crazy busy it can be as a people leader and how competing priorities always seem to get in the way of actually being able to provide the good stuff, the real value added stuff. Let me help you by doing the heavy lifting and you can get back to doing what you do best, engaging with and supporting your people. Let's connect and talk about the best ways I can help. As always, I'm here if you need me. And I know Jordan is too. So thank you so, so much for being here today, Jordan. It has been such a pleasure. I learned a ton uh, and I know that everybody else did too. Thanks so much for having me, Lindsay. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take care.